Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Marilyn, it's really good to see you. Hopefully you can endure sound doctrine for this next while here. But anyway, questionable. It's hurting a little bit. Yeah. Well, we understand whatever happens here. But anyway, good to see you. Uh, let's uh, look to the Lord in a word of prayer and get into our study time together here. <clears throat> Lord, we do thank you for your word now. And uh, we do thank you for the, for the glory land that we sing about tonight. And uh, Lord, the, the best is yet to be for us who are true believers. And so we look forward to uh, that time when we'll be there. But in the meantime, we have work to do. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the word of God, which instructs us and gives us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So we commit our study to you. Pray that the seamless study would go well also uh, tonight. Again, we thank you for your word. I may it have its way in our lives as we study now. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, you know, once we get saved, uh, we have Christ as our Savior. We also get something else at that same time. You know what it is? <clears throat> That's true, too. Lots of things enter in here. But I'm thinking in particular of... Uh, a relationship here. A Holy Spirit would be a relationship too. But uh, we get a Savior, but we also get an entire family, right? Right. You don't get saved in isolation. You get saved to a family. Uh, you have a Savior, you have a family. And that's really what the book of Ephesians is all about. It's emphasizing uh, the family of God, uh, the church of Jesus Christ, which is uh, the people of God, the believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, let me give you a summary slide here as far as the church. Uh, we talk about chapters 1 through 3, positional truth, emphasis on union with Christ, union with each other. Uh, that's the church. Uh, we are in union with Christ and we are in union with each other. And, and really, those, that emphasis is interwoven uh, throughout the scriptures, especially here in the book of e Ephesians, which has uh, as its theme the church. We are in the practical section. Practice builds on doctrine or, or positional truth. And uh, emphasis, keep the unity, uh, build the unity through gift use, and live the unity. That's where we left off here at the end of chapter 4. Now the live, live the unity theme continues as we emphasize walk in love tonight in our study. And that's where we pick it up here, chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. Uh, somebody want to read uh, verses 1 and 2 for us. Uh, Ephesians uh, 5, 1 and 2. Somebody want to read? Yeah, Antoinette. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Okay, thank you. So he starts out with therefore. He's building a certain theme, and this is really the third section in Paul's treatment on conduct. Remember, we have doctrine laid down, and then our conduct, our practice builds on that. And uh, in terms of this uh, section, as I say, it's the third section on conduct. Uh, we are to walk in unity, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, we are to walk in holiness, chapter 4, verse 17. And now we are to walk in love, as we see here in 5, 1, and 2. And he says, therefore, be, be is in the present tense. This is to be an ongoing way of life, present tense. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Uh, imitators is just as it sounds. Uh, we are to imitate. We are to mimic. We are to copy God. You know, it was popular for a little while. We had the WWJD uh, bracelets and so forth. What would Jesus do? Well, that kind of fits with this verse right here. Be imitators of God as dear children. 
Uh, it really builds here what we're talking about here as we think about this, this whole issue of walking in love. Uh, there's, there's a positive emphasis in terms of uh, live like God, imitate God. On the other hand, on the negative, abstain from evil. And we'll look at that in verses 3 through 7. So walking in love has a, a positive connotation and a negative. Uh, you walk this way and then you don't walk this way. And uh, it kind of builds on what we ended with last time in verse 32. If you got your Bible open there, note verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. There's a double emphasis on forgiving there, as God has forgiven us. And uh, the word here for forgiving is really, more literally, to be gracious. Includes forgiving, but it's kind of a broad word. It relates to this, be kind to one another. And uh, I think this, uh, therefore, be imitators of God, builds on that. This is God-like. What kind of a God do we have? We have a a forgiving God, right? That's right. Uh, Forgive one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. A very gracious, forgiving God. And I'm very thankful for that. Uh, Boy, where would we be if he wasn't a forgiving God? And so we too are to be forgiving and everything's building on that here now. Therefore, be imitators of God uh, as dear children. Uh, You know, we as God's children are representatives of God. I mean, that's really what we're doing in the world. This is our mission. We say, well, our mission is this, this, this. Yeah, but boil it down really in different ways. We are to be reflecting God to the world. Uh, we are the body of Christ. What, what's that imagery? He's the head. He's controlling what's going on here. But we are his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece, so to speak, in the world. We are the body of Christ. And so we are to put God on display. Hopefully people can see God in us. Uh, been a God sighting in your life lately? Well, hopefully it'll, he'll show up soon, right? <laughs> Uh, and of course, we're all want to be humble. Of course, there's plenty of the flesh to go around here in all of our lives, for sure. As we're not glorified yet, and we all know we're very human here. But uh, be imitators of God. That's what, that's what our calling is. Reminds me of that story, true story about Alexander the Great. There was a, a soldier in his army that was named Alexander, and it got back to Alexander the Great that he was not behaving himself very well. Well, Alexander the Great called him in, and he said, "Either you change your name." Or you change your behavior. Uh, He didn't appreciate this guy being called Alexander. (laughs) Since he was acting in a way that was unbecoming of the name. Well, we are uh, to be imitators of God as dear children. Uh, Dear children, meaning precious. Precious to God. And uh, beloved. Uh, Dear children, God so loved us that we should so love. I mean, this is to be reflected in our lives as dear dear children. Uh, You know, we need to be gracious with one another. We need to hold each other accountable. That's part of love too. But we need to be gracious, gracious with one another. It goes just a long way. Love goes a long ways. It's a powerful thing. And uh, that's where he goes here in verse two, as he says, be imitators of God as dear, dear children and walk in love. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Uh, walk relates to our conduct, our lifestyle, uh, how we live. Uh, and, and the idea here in, of walking in love, it's to be the atmosphere we live in. Um, it's a wonderful thing when you kind of live in, in love as far as the, uh, what's permeating our lives, the love of God. 
Um, let's see, I got another slide here. We are building, I think everything's building here in a sense, uh, as we go through the text, forgive even as God in Christ forgave. Uh, and how did he forgive? Well, greatly, in my case, maybe you're just a real little minor sinner, barely in the, in the camp, but uh, God has forgiven us all greatly. Be imitators of God's graciousness, uh, show great grace. Uh, walk in love as Christ loved, uh, great sacrificial love as we move through the verse here. So this is what it means to be imitators of God. And he clarifies it here. Uh, walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Uh, again, he's building on this forgiving theme, this gracious theme of being kind uh, to one another. Uh, as, as Christ also loved us. Well, how did Christ love us? He gave his life for us. Uh, might say sacrificially, right? To the point of laying down his life for us. Right, that's for sure. He put us first. Uh, love uh, considers the other person before yourself. Uh, considers the highest good of the other person. Uh, Christ loved us in that way and clarifies further and given himself for us. He voluntarily laid down his life for us. He wanted to do it. You didn't have to do it, but he voluntarily did it. Uh, so uh, Christ's kind of love is self-giving. Uh, and it's costly, right? It's costly. Yeah, it's costly. Um, and we know the example of Jesus, right? The, the foot washing example, the night before he was crucified. Uh, all, and then, of course, the ultimate example of him going to the, to the cross. Walking in love paints with a broad brush. It takes into account the whole of the practical section of the book in terms of how we are to live in a self-giving, sacrificial way. I think that there's a, there is that broad aspect. However, in the immediate context, I think there's a particular emphasis on God's love related to forgiveness. Everything's flowing out of verse 32 in a sense. In fact, a lot of commentators think that uh, these verses should not be the beginning of a new chapter. You know, the thought's kind of continuing on here. Uh, so, yeah, I think there is a particular emphasis on God's love related to forgiveness. Christ's great love and his giving himself for us directly relates to our being forgiven. As seen in verse uh, in chapter 432. The central issue of the cross was essentially about love and forgiveness. Right? Uh, right. Absolutely. God demonstrates his love toward us. Not while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To, to what end? So we could be forgiven. So we could be forgiven. Now I wonder if that's to be reflected as imitators of God. I, I love you, therefore I'm going to forgive you. And keep you on probation for only seven months this time. <laughs> Uh, no, we want to be very, very gracious uh, as uh, Christ loved us and has given himself for us. And then it says an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. This is the language of the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, offerings and sacrifice. Uh, offerings relate to worship. Uh, sacrifice brings in the idea of a, of a death uh, Payment, uh, death, you know, wages of sin is death. And you see that typology even in the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And so uh, I think what you have is a, a kind of a summary of, of the typology in the Old Testament. The Old Testament system uh, related to offerings and sacrifice that finds its, uh, it has typology in the Old Testament, but finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 
And uh, he was an offering related to uh, gave himself voluntarily a sacrifice, uh, a death a sacrifice uh, as a payment uh, to meet God's holy demands as far as the payment for sin. But then he says, for a sweet-smelling aroma. That's interesting, because if you study the sacrifices in Leviticus, uh, the first three chapters, Leviticus 1 through 3, uh, you've got the grain offering, the peace offering, and the burnt offering. And what kind of offerings were those? Well, there's a little hint in our text here, right? For a sweet-smelling aroma. Uh, those were a sweet, it was delightful to God. It was a sweet, those were, and they were voluntary offerings, uh, free will offerings. And then, of course, we have other sacrifices uh, and uh, so forth. In Leviticus 4 and 5, we have a sin offering and a trespass offering, which were non-sweet smelling aroma offerings to God. And uh, they more typified uh, death. Uh, where you had the, uh, the, the grain offering emphasizing thanksgiving to God. You had the peace offering uh, emphasizing fellowship with God. You had the, the burnt offering emphasizing uh, surrender to God, uh, consecration to God, uh, and commitment. All of those uh, were the uh, sweet smelling. But then the sin and the trespass offering. Uh, it's interesting. Um, let me put up a couple of slides here. Note in terms of practice versus position, forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences or that people are not held accountable in any way. There is a place for con uh, confrontation, discipline, biblical separation, etc. However, the issue in forgiveness is not carrying bitterness or a grudge in our hearts. Uh, we let it go and leave it with God no matter what the situation so it uh, doesn't mean, you know, well, it doesn't matter what you, you do. There's, there's no accountability here. It, it doesn't affect our, our uh, fellowship anyway. It does. Uh, there is accountability that factors in as well. But uh, note here what we're talking about, what Jesus Christ did in his example. In Isaiah 53, 11, he shall see the labor of his soul. This is a prophecy concerning the, the cross, really, the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Uh, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I want to zero in on that word satisfied. So the sweet smelling aroma here in Ephesians 5, 2 speaks of the post-cross response of God the Father. The ultimate voluntary offering, this greatest of all costly sacrifices, was enough. It totally appeased God's righteous demands for the payment of sin. He accepted it and approved. Looking at it in totality as an accomplished act, it was a sweet-smelling aroma of worship that ascended up before God, which he found pleasing and satisfying. I think that that's the sense here. <clears throat> well done. Uh, you know, he's satisfied with this. It pleased God. It was a, a, a wonderful aroma. And really, as a, as a human being, it was a, it was a worshipful thing that Jesus Christ did in terms of his Father as well. It's an act of obedience, uh, Christ was obedient even to the point of the death of the cross, as we find in, in Philippians chapter 2. So, uh, so anyway, uh, this idea of a, of a sweet-smelling aroma, we are to uh, walk in love uh, just as Christ uh, loved us in that sense. All right, uh, we are going to change gears, but before we do, any input on those first two verses? Okay. 
Well, let's consider the contrasts of walking in love, shall we? Uh, let's say have somebody read verse 3, Ephesians 5, 3. Yeah, Mickey? The fornication and all uncleanness, cleanliness, or covetousness, let it not be, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Okay, thank you. But it's a contrast word. He's been talking about walking in love. This is the opposite, which is kind of like walking in lust. Walking in love. Now we've got fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. And he says, uh, in contrast, don't do these things. And really, in a sense, what you have here is counterfeit love. The world often talks about love, but really what they're talking about is a whole different language. You know, what we're, we know as, as the love of Christ, which is not a lustful thing, but uh, thinks of the other person's highest good instead of self-gratification. Uh, this here relates to uh, sensual gratification, selfish gratification. Uh, he says, but fornication, uh, the Greek word here is pornea, which is a broad word related to generally sexual immorality of all kinds. Uh, but fornication, uh, sexual immorality, and all uncleanness, uh, impurity. It's a general word, uh, the idea of uh, moral or, or sexually unclean. Um, let's see, my next slide here. When we love with Christ's love, we love forgivingly, givingly. That's, that's, a, that's a good English word there, isn't it? Givingly. <laughs> is that right, Ron? Is that, is that a good English word? <laughs> it'll work it'll work right yeah forgivingly givingly and sacrificially we had to have an l word there you see yeah so there's, there's got to be some consistency when we love with christ's love we love forgivingly givingly and sacrificially this is high worship that ascends before god as a pleasurable aroma that is pleasing and satisfying to him this is what it means to be an imitator of god and to walk in love as christ loved us so, and that is uh, in distinction and in contrast to what we have here in verses 3 and on, uh, which is anything but sacrificial, givingly, and so forth. Uh, it's just the counter distinction to it. So, um, and then he says, or covetousness. Now, that's an interesting word thrown right in the middle of a, a sexual context, really. And... Uh, uh, the idea of covetousness is wanting that which does not really belong to you. It's not yours to have. Uh, it's greedy in the sense that I, I want it for self-indulgence, even though it's not mine to have. It's not proper for me to have it. That's the idea of covetousness. And this word is in both here and in Colossians 3, right in the context of sexual type sin. Yes. Albert? Because... That's right. That's right. It fits there, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And uh, there's some more we want to add to this as we get down to verse 5. But yeah, uh, or covetousness. Um, uncleanness. Uh, we talk about uncleanness and covetousness. And uh, what in the world to get my slide out of order here? I'm ahead of myself. I'm on covetousness already. All right. <laughs> uh, the overwhelming majority of usage in the New Testament associates it with sexual sin, this word uncleanness. Such things as immoral thoughts, passions, fantasies, or any type of sexual perversion would be in view. 
In view is sexual deviancy of any kind that defiles, stains, makes unclean. It is what uh, is spiritually filthy and degrading. So let's back up. We'll get back to covetousness in a minute here. But when you think about uncleanness, you know what I think about in a very big way? I think about porn. We have a mega problem in our culture with porn. And it's everywhere. It's hard to avoid, in fact. Uh, Certainly soft porn. I mean, it just comes up, you know, unsolicited. (laughs) And, uh, boy, you got to watch yourself because your eyes want to go with it, right? And so uh, it's easy to be defiled by that. Uh, We don't want anything to do with that. Uh, Uncleanness. And now let's talk a little bit about covetousness as well here. Uh, uh, Self-sacrifice as modeled by Christ is true love. Self-indulgence as exemplified by the world is lust. And this relates to that whole idea of covetousness. It is a perversion of of true love. So uh, note that there. And uh, let's see here. Which slide is this for me? Is that number eight or number nine? Okay. Colossians 3, 5. Thank you. Appreciate your teamwork here. Colossians 3, 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, same list basically, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Now, we're going to come back to this same thought in verse 5, but it's interesting to me. You know, one of the strongest passions that people have as far as the flesh in life is sexual passion. And it seems to me what God is saying here is that he's to be a higher priority than that. Uh, He's to be Lord even over the most intense fleshy passions that we have. God wants to be number one. And so... uh, It's interesting that he links it with idolatry, which we will talk about when we get to uh, verse 5. But notice he says, uh, fornication, uncleanness, or covetousness, uh, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. There shouldn't be uh, uh, not even a hint, not even a hint of this in the fellowship of God's people. Sadly, that's often not the case, but it should be unheard of. This This is not going on amongst God's people. And in fact, uh, you know, if it is going on, there should be church discipline. I mean, 1 Corinthians 5 is very clear. You, you just cannot, this cannot be tolerated uh, in the context of, of God's people. We are to be a holy family. Yes, we're merciful and we're gracious and we're forgiving and all of that. And yet, there, you know, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Uh, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, that is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, this is our sanctification. This is what sets us apart. Um, and boy, I'll tell you what, we are really being hammered by the, the world is, boy, they're all about this right now. I was reading a couple articles. Uh, this one's by uh, Albert uh, Moeller Jr. And he says, today, higher education has become one of the major engines of social and moral revolution. And boy, it has. Uh, he says, Christians who hold a biblical understanding of sex, sexual, um, sexual morality, <coughs> marriage, <coughs> excuse me, and gender are now considered to be the enemies of human flourishing. Liberation on most campuses means liberation from the oppressive, quote unquote, morality of the Bible. That's where we are in society for sure. If you're going to stand for this, believe me, you're a hater. You're a hater. Uh, he says, the pressures are enormous. 
The larger society is moving quickly to consolidate and codify the sexual revolution and the LGBTQ movement as national policy. And that is true. On a fast track there. Uh, the demands now come to Christian colleges, and they come like this. If you want to consider your school as, legitimate, uh, as a legitimate institution of learning, if you want to consider uh, yourself intellectually respectable, if you want our financial support, if you want to play in our athletic tournaments, if you want to avoid the judgment we can pour out on you, then surrender your biblical commitments and get with the program. And you better do it fast. The LGBTQ activists working in concert with the Biden administration are pushing toward what they see as final victory. Uh, their central legislative aim is the Equality Act. I don't know if you've heard about this, but this Equality Act is really terrible stuff. Uh, and there's really only about four votes in the Senate that are holding it back at present. It's already gone through the House, but the, their central uh, legislative aim is the uh, Equality Act, which would prohibit Christian schools from operating according to biblical morality. Another article, uh, this one by Jerry Davis, who is the president of College of the Ozarks, says the Equality Act, which has passed the House of Representatives and is under consideration in the Senate, would make it virtually impossible for Christian colleges to survive, uh, etc., he says, under the Equality Act, as it is currently written, Christian colleges will be forced to hire people who are opposed to biblical truth since sexual orientation and gender identity have been added to the list of protected classes under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So now we've got law. Uh, and what you're doing over here as an institution is against the law. You know what, you know what that means? Lawsuits, right? Lawsuits. You're going to be sued. Uh, churches are, are coming here somewhere down the line, I'm sure. But uh, he says, uh, in some scenarios, Christian colleges would be forced to adopt the transgender agenda as it relates to residence halls, bathrooms, sports, and language usage, since a refusal to do so would be discrimination against a protected class. This would mean a biological man declaring himself to be a woman would have the right to all services, activities designed uh, for women, and that any uh, original concept of male and female difference would be altered. Well, there you go. What sets us apart? This is the will of God, uh, even our sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. This sets us apart from the world. The whole world's buying into this. And if they, if they don't actually agree with it themselves, they're very tolerant of it, right? They go along with it in that sense. And, uh, you know, we're going to be tested. Uh, where are we going to stand on this? I, I remember when this whole, uh, you know, push started coming in. There was an older lady in the church, and her... Her family member has never been to the church, but he told her, uh, your pastor is going to cave on this homosexual stuff. And so she came and asked me, are you going to cave? <laughs> and I said, nope, even if, even if I have to leave the ministry, even if we close down the whole shop and have to go underground. Uh, church isn't going anywhere, by the way. It, it will continue. I mean, Christ is going to build his church. Uh, <laughs> We're just going around the corner. Is that where we're going? Okay. I'm talking about maybe underground because of persecution. Anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, notice uh, we continue on here. Uh, Let it not be once named among you as become a saint. It's never appropriate for God's people. It's never acceptable. Uh, we must not be tolerant. Now, we want to be loving, you know, and, and we are. And I talk about, you know, there's different types of love. We love people evangelistically, people that are outside the faith. 
we don't hold them to the same high standards as we do Christians. But in the family, now you're accountable. You can't live this way. Nope, there's going to be discipline if you live this way. Uh, it, it can't be tolerated. Uh, notice uh, he says, as is fitting for saints. Now, if you're an ain't, okay, okay. But what if you're a saint? What's the word saint mean, by the way? Set apart ones. That's saints. We're set apart. We're different from the world. We understand the whole world's... I understand the world's mentality here. They're in rebellion against God. They're trying to just live for self, live for the moment. And who cares what we do? You know, we're trying to get rid of this whole thing called lordship. We've got our own life to live here. I get that. They're in rebellion. But for us as believers, we're saints. We're saints. And we are to live differently. We must let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Okay, uh, verse 4. Uh, somebody want to read that, verse 4. Yeah, John? Okay, so uh, we talked about sexual conduct uh, at some length in verse 3. Now kind of coarse uh, sexual talk. In, in uh, verse 4, have you noticed this? I never listen to, to uh, night shows, you know, the, the light show, whatever it is. I don't even know what they're called anymore. But, uh, they're not, they're not oh, it's worse than that. Of course, I can't stay up that late anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's where it seems to go. You don't have to listen for about more than 30 seconds, and it gravitates to coarse jesting. Uh, neither filthiness, this is the idea of that which is obscene, speech, dirty, filthy, vulgar, uh, what we commonly call smut. And that's not, that's not fitting for saints. It's not appropriate. Foul language of any sort should never pass a Christian's lips because it's totally out of character with his new life in Christ. It's true. Just, just out of character. Um, I, don't, I don't see Jesus doing this type of stuff. It's not what he does. Not what he did. Neither filthy, filthiness nor foolish talking. Uh, this is a Greek word moros, uh, from which we get our English word moron. Don't be talking like a moron. Uh, nor foolish talking. It, this is stupid talk that is in keeping with rebellion. Rebellious. Uh, that's the idea. Profane talk. Uh, nor coarse jesting, uh, which uh, is irreverent humor, uh, sexual innuendos, so that which is inappropriate, uh, which are not fitting. Again, it's not fitting. It's, it's not appropriate, but rather giving of thanks. By the way, those giving to uh, obscenities and uh, profanity and you know, irreverent humor, they tend to be people that are not the most thankful. Right? In contrast to all of that, we are to be a thankful people. I've often said, I ought to be able to tell we're Christians just by our thankfulness. We're a thankful people. You know, we're, we're not griping about the weather. It's not hot outside, is it? <laughs> Praise the Lord for air conditioning. I'm thankful for it, right? Absolutely. Uh, our whole attitude is to be different. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts before we go on to verse 5 here? We must be covering it sufficiently. All right. Somebody want to read verse 5? Somebody read verse 5? 
Yeah, Tom? For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, boy, this is a pretty uh, sobering verse. This you know. How, how would they know this, by the way? How might they know this? He says, you know this. For this you know. How might they know it? It's the book of Ephesians, right? Paul, on his second missionary journey, spent some time at Ephesus. This might have been a circular letter, but we believe Ephesus was in here. Uh, how long did he spend at Ephesus on that third missionary or second missionary journey? Three years. I think they probably covered this. What do you think? Yeah. I think so. That's why he's saying, uh, for this you know. This is not new material to you guys. We've already covered this. And I think he covered it thoroughly. Uh, For this you know that no fornicator, immoral person, unclean person, uh, impure person, there's overlap here, uh, nor covetous man. Oh, that's the same things he mentioned back in verse 3. Who is an idolater. Now he adds the qualifier here that the person who lives this way is actually an idolater. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So we have the same three vices mentioned here in verse 5 that we saw back in verse 3. Fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. Now, he's really talking, I think, about a person who... This has become kind of their god. These are their gods. Uh, Fornication, uncleanness, uh, covetousness. They live in that zone where where they live for it. It, it's, It's their god. And uh, idolatry is, is, you know, an, an idol is something that's put in the place of God. It's, it's like God to you. You serve it. It's your Lord. In context, idolatry applies to coveting someone sexually to where one doesn't care what God thinks. They just want it. In this case, Jesus is not functioning as Lord. Rather, the object of passion is. This passion controls the life, not Jesus. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. You know, I think uh, sex is a big, uh, immoral sex here. And within the bounds of marriage, it's a good thing, right? Marriage is honorable among all the bed undefiled. Fornicators, adulterers, God will judge. So we're talking about immorality. But immorality is a huge God in our whole culture. We'll kill for it. You know, uh, the abortion industry, uh, it's related to this, this God, this immoral God that people have. To the point, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. We'll, we'll even kill for it. It's idolatry. Idolatry is when anything usurps the rightful place of God. Uh, Our all-consuming passion is to be God and not fleshy passions. Uh, God demands to be number one. It's a lordship issue, really. That's that's what we're talking about. It's a lordship issue. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All the way through, idolatry and immorality very closely linked. Yeah. Bill, you had your hand up.
we see in our culture is not about politics anymore. It seems to be a convenient religion. Yeah. And that's because Christianity is not being pushed aside, it's being persecuted. Yeah. Sure. I think idolatry has a huge umbrella. You know, you have this great prostitute in the book of Revelation, the great whore. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of tentacles here. So anything that's in, in the place of God here, whatever it is that you serve and you live for and it drives you, it's your passion. You know, and here we're talking in context, especially about uh, sexual passions. But yeah, I think uh, a lot of things can be God to you for sure. Yep. Okay. Uh, anything else? All right. Let me let me press on here. Uh, I think I got one more slide here. The whole world is essentially governed by the lusts and passions of the flesh in all of its varieties. But the true Christian sees Christ as Lord, even of his passions that uh, that he still struggles with. Uh, he has so learned Christ. Right. We have learned Christ. Uh, we know who he is. Uh, we know who's the master. We know who's the savior. Uh, and, and that affects our life. And uh, we don't want to live like that. Certainly we'll never be happy there. The most miserable Christian in the world is one who's living in sin. Believe me. Uh, is Jesus Lord or is sexual passion Lord? That's a good question. For, for the world, this is the, this is the answer. But for us, it's Jesus. Anything else is Lord is covetousness, which is idolatry. That's the point. That's the bottom line point that we're looking at here in our context. And so he says, you know that no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh, he's talking about uh, habit habitual practice here uh, of immoral behavior that clearly shows Jesus is not the person's Lord. Their allegiance is really to the flesh, to self. That really defines them. It defines the world. And he says these people, uh, qualified by the idea of idolatry, to the point of idolatry, uh, no inheritance. They're not saved. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 18, he uses the idea of inheritance. Uh, he equates it to uh, having eternal life. And I think that's the idea here. Um, those characterized in this way will not be going into God's kingdom. All of the terms here are written without definite articles uh, emphasizing general quality rather than particular incidents. Even believers can occasionally fall into sin and have particular incidents of sin. But their whole lifestyle will not be characterized by sin. It's one thing to live in sin. It's another thing to wrestle with it and fall into it. And we do wrestle with it. I mean, we still have the flesh. Uh, obviously, we do. I mean, that's why we have all these exhortations not to do these things, even in, in the scriptures. But note uh, this, uh, the contrast in this passage, this is Harold Honer, the contrast in this passage is between those who inherit and those who receive the wrath of God, not between faithful and unfaithful disciples. It is a contrast between heaven and hell and not a comparison of degree. Uh, the consistent testimony of scripture is that people who habitually practice immorality are not saved. I mean, that, that, that scripture is consistent on that. And we're talking about a pattern here, a practice here to where you would call it idolatry. This is idolatry in the person's life. It, it's like a God to them. You know what we call this in, in our culture a lot of times? An addiction, an addiction. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, it, it governs your life. Uh, that's the idea here. Um, okay. Uh, 
Any other thoughts before we wrap up here? We've got three minutes to do it. That should be no problem. Let's have somebody read verses uh, 6 and 7. Who wants to read that? 6 and 7. Yeah, Albert? Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers of them. Okay, this is a consistent emphasis that we have from Paul. Don't let anybody deceive you. He does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he lists all these vices that he says such were some of you. Uh, Don't let anybody deceive you. People that live like this, uh, they claim they're Christians maybe. But don't let them deceive you with empty words. Uh, It's just empty professors. It's it's hollow. Uh, Be discerning is what he's saying. Now, when people live like this, it's a, it's, a, it's a dead giveaway. They're not true Christians. Naive Christians often point to a decision, a signed card. You know, that signed card, that definitely gets you into heaven. Uh, a raised hand, going forward, etc. And on that, that basis, deduct, I know he is saved. I was there! Right, right. The person may have done those things, but the real issue is what happened in the heart. And the real evidence of a changed heart is a changed life. If that isn't in place, then it doesn't matter what kind of outward profession has been made. The real issue is what happens after the profession, not the profession itself. Every true believer down deep in his heart loves Jesus, wants to follow Jesus. Conversion means his heart has been changed. He may stumble and fail miserably, and yet his desire is to be obedient. He now has a new nature that wants to do right. Yes, the Christian still has the old sin nature, the flesh, too. But he is not the same person he used to be. We are new creations in Christ with a new nature. And we, on top of that, have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Um, let's see here. I think I got one more J. Vernon McGee quote. If you can get into sin and not be troubled or bothered by it, you're not a child of God. If you can, can sin and get by with it, you're not a child of God. You know what I know about my father? He's a very good father, and uh, he loves his children enough to discipline them. In fact, he disciplines all of his children, according to Hebrews chapter 12. So McGee is absolutely right. And then he says, because, for because of these things, the wrath of God uh, comes on the sons of disobedience. Um, it's interesting here. He describes uh, the wrath of God that comes on the sons of disobedience. Uh, This defines uh, unbelievers. Uh, We have in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, uh, this is what we were before salvation. We were by nature children of wrath just as others. So we were children of wrath. And here he describes the lost as uh, the wrath of God that comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the unbelievers are uh, children, uh, by nature, children of wrath. Uh, They are sons of disobedience, which is why the wrath of God is coming upon them. Now, if if the unbelievers are described as sons of disobedience, what must the believers be described as, would you suppose? I would say so. Sons of obedience. There's a contrast being made all the way through here, as we have noted. So uh, note that. And then he says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. A solemn warning. Serious consequences come to those who practice this type of activity. Uh, Don't participate. Uh, I think it's possible to some degree. Uh, like I say, there's going to be consequences, disciplinary consequences, etc. But uh, he said, don't be partakers with him. Don't, get, don't be deceived. Uh, don't 
get sucked into that trap. There is a sin unto death, by the way, as the Bible says. Uh, A couple of slides here to finish out. Immorality and impure language are not to have any part in the believer's life. These things are what characterize the unbeliever and target them with the wrath of God. Do not be deceived. Don't think, well, God's passive. All grace. It's all grace. It's all, all good. It doesn't matter how we live. Yeah, don't be deceived. True Christians do not characteristically live this way. There are serious consequences for all who participate in such activities. Well, this is a little story about comedian Red Skelton in 1951. He took a party of friends with him on a plane to Europe uh, where he was to perform in London. As they were flying over the Swiss Alps, three of the plane's engines failed. That, that's, that's not good, right? You know that old joke about, you know, they, I shouldn't even tell this dumb joke at this point. But they lost an engine up there. And the pilot says, you know, we're going to be about a half hour late. We've lost an engine. Comes on a little bit later and says, you know what? We're going to be an hour late. We've lost two engines now. And he comes on a little later and says, you know, it's going to be an hour and a half late. We've lost three engines. The guy looks over and says, you know, if we need, need, uh, lose another engine, we're going to be up here all night. <laughs> anyway, they lost three of the engines. The situation looked great. People began to pray. Skelton went into one of his best comic routines to try and distract him. The plane was losing power, coming closer and closer to the mountain. The last moment the pilot spotted the clearing was able to land the plane. Skelton broke the re- and relieved the silence by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, you may now return to the evil habits that you gave up 20 minutes ago. You know something? That's not authentic Christianity. Uh, that's a crisis Christ. It's not really real. doesn't last. There's no evidence in the life. Uh, do not be deceived. Uh, true Christianity is known by the evidence, by the fruit that we see in the life. We're not saved by these things. Uh, we're saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. But if it's real, it's a life-changing kind of faith. That's what I see all the way through the scriptures. All right. Any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Walk in love. Don't walk in lust. Walk in love. Yes, Michael. Amen, brother. Well said. Amen to that. And I think, you know, that's why Paul's constantly warning. You know, he says here, for this, you know, I mean, it's not like they didn't already know this stuff. And yet he's hammering it yet again, just like you're saying. Uh, we need we need that for sure. And I think of Paul, let him think if he stand to take heed lest he fall. I mean, we're all we can all fall. 
you know, so many pastors fall into sin. That's why I never counsel women alone. I, I, you know, I say, well, you, you, aren't you a little stronger than that, pastor? No, I'm sorry. I'm not. Uh, it's not worth falling into sin. I bring my wife in. You know, it's not that I won't help people. <laughs> but <laughs> don't be a fool here. We're all vulnerable. Uh, all right. Anything else? Very good. Let's share some prayer requests. You have your prayer sheet? Everybody have a prayer sheet?